A couple weeks back, Dave essentially answered the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Looking at um, Leibniz's argument from contingency. Today, we're going to try to answer a different cosmological question, um, which is, why did the universe actually begin? Um, now, a simple answer might sound something like this. Scientifically, we know, based on what a lot of us know, that the universe had a starting point, a beginning. The universe isn't eternal. And if this is true, that the universe is in fact finite, which most scientists would agree upon, then how or why did the universe start? Essentially, there's two possible responses. It came from nothing, or it came from something. However, coming from nothing is absurd, because nothing comes from nothing. It's never been observed for something to come out of nothing. Common sense espouses this. If you have nothing, nothing comes. If you have nothing, you should expect nothing to come from it. So just imagine nothing. And this is something Dave pointed out that William Lane Craig did back as a kid, back in Iowa. He kind of imagined nothing. It's kind of a strange concept. Nothing has no energy, no space, no darkness, no matters, no atoms, no particles, just nothing. Essentially a lack of something. So to assume that out of this lack of something, the world popped into place and brought us to this very point is again just absurd. Now, I had a similar experience to Craig growing up. Now, mine's a little less elegant, um, but bear with me. Dave and Wendell both kind of told me to back off a little bit on the potty talk. Um, but in the restroom at my parents' house growing up, the toilet's kind of set into a wall. So when you're standing there, eight years old, kind of at the ready, you kind of feel like you're in this tunnel. And so when I'm standing in this tunnel, and this is very accurate, I'm no hyperbole here, I would get very imaginative and philosophical while I was standing there, and I would go deep into thought like I was like squinting my eyes to see a Rorschach test or like one of those magic eye pictures from the 90s. And I would contemplate the idea of nothingness um, and eternity. I would contemplate a world without God. I would contemplate the idea that if there was no God, once you die, you're just dead forever and ever and ever. And if there's no God, you don't even know you're dead. And you just exist into eternity. And even the even more messed up part was I wouldn't even know I was dead, like I said. You just cease and are nothing. Eventually the planet heats up, dies out, kills everybody on Earth, and time passes on. No memories, just nothing forever and ever and ever. This messed with my head and was certainly a critical reason as to why finding out if there was a God and who he was, was, became a quest very early in life for me. Now, if the universe isn't eternal and arguably didn't come from nothing, then the only other viable option is that something caused it. We could say aliens did it. Aliens are something. It's less absurd than nothing, but where did the aliens come from? So you're here back to square one. It seems clear that the something must be outside the created things, so something eternal, like the God revealed in the Bible. Then the question that is often asked by skeptics here is, who created the Bible, or created God? Well, God is different from the aliens and us and other created things. God is actually eternal. He's outside of the finite created things in time. He's the uncaused first cause that created all things. So there, that's the end of the sermon. Go and be like Jesus. I have a part two, sorry. So let's take that simple argument and give it a little more thought. Let's start with the question as to whether or not the universe had a beginning or if it's eternal like many of the ancient Greek philosophers thought. 
So the ancient Greek philosophers might have said that God may have been responsible for introducing order into the cosmos, but would argue that he didn't necessarily create the universe itself. But the Jews, and later the Christians, and even later than that, the Muslims would argue differently. The first verse of Genesis states just that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And about a thousand years after that, when Islam became, began, began spreading, Islamic philosophers argued similarly to the Jews and the Christians that God created the universe. This is when we begin to hear of the Kalam cosmological argument. The Kalam cosmological argument originated with ancient Christ Christian philosophers like John Philoponus of Alexandria in the 500s to refute the Greek ideas regarding an eternal universe. When Islam swept over Egypt, it absorbed the tradition and developed sophisticated versions of the argument. One of the earliest formulations of the argument comes from an Islamic philosopher by the name of Al-Ghazali and was formulated about a thousand years ago. And that same argument has been popularized in modern times by William Lane Craig. And he goes through it in his book On Guard um, and simply stated, here it is. Um, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause of its beginning. So pretty simple. The argument is logically airtight, according to Craig. If the two premises are true, numbers one and two, then the conclusion, number three, necessarily follows. If you want to deny the conclusion that the universe has had a cause of its beginning, you need to disagree with at least one of the first two premises, that whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning or that the universe began to exist. Let's look now at the two premises. First, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. This seems self-evident. If there isn't a cause, then it came from nothing, and that's impossible. Craig shares three reasons in support of the premise, one in his book On Guard. So, as I've mentioned already, something cannot come from nothing. If you deny that the universe or anything came into existence without a cause, you are left holding that everything just popped out of nowhere for no reason. And this just doesn't happen. Now. I've learned from personal experience, and Dave kind of pointed this out two weeks ago, that when you attempt to talk to an atheist about abiogenesis, or essentially the origins of life, you don't find them actually talking about nothing. Um, you'll hear them refer to things like subatomic particles, or virtual particles, or a singularity. Um, they would argue that these very simple, minute things emerged out of nowhere, and evolution just took over from there. But regardless, you still have something coming from nothing, even if it's something minute, like a subatomic particle or a singularity. Now, saying that something small and minuscule can come from nothing less, from nothing less illogical than saying that something big, like the universe, can come from nothing? What about something considerably smaller than the universe, yet bigger than a subatomic particle, like a bicycle or a grandfather clock? Is it any better to say that a bicycle or a grandfather clock came out of existence from nothing when compared to a self-starting universe? If something big or small can come into beginning being from nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything or everything doesn't just come into being from nothing. Sometimes atheists will agree that yes, the premise is true, but just not that one time at the very beginning of the universe. So that one time that determines all the other times will never be repeated. Um, and kind of sounds ludicrous when you say it like that. And I think this is referred to as the taxicab fallacy. Um, but many atheists simply double down on this idea that the universe came from nothing. Because the second you agree that everything that has a beginning has a cause, you're partway to having to admit that there could be a God. 
In fact, Quentin Smith of Western Michigan University states that the most rational position to hold is that the universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Similarly, the 18th century philosopher J.L. Mackey felt that it made more sense to believe that the universe came into being uncaused and out of nothing than to believe that God created the universe out of nothing. Mackey agreed with the principle that something could, come from, could not come from nothing, but felt it more logical to defy his own logic if it meant that belief in God was the alternative. The atheist must go through a plethora of mental and logical gymnastics just so they don't have to believe in God. This is simply the faith of an atheist, according to Craig. Craig argues that this represents a greater leap of faith than a belief in the existence of God. Granted, both claims, this idea that something came from nothing, or that God is that something, are pretty fantastic, um, but the absurdity one has to endure to or accept to literally say that everything we know and can see is the result of nothing creating everything is worse than magic, as Craig would put it. If this is the alternative to belief in God, then unbelievers can never rightly accuse the believers of irrationality. A belief in an uncaused first cause at least has logic on its side. The next hurdle that needs to be addressed, um, number two, or number second zero, um, relates to something I shared in the opening related to if whatever begins to exist has a cause. If that is the case, then the question inevitably asked by skeptics is, then who created God? Remember, though, premise one does not say whatever exists has a cause. It says whatever begins to exist has a cause. Something eternal does not need or have a cause. Now, this is exactly what some atheists would say about the universe. However, what we know, and we're going to look at in more detail here this morning, is that there's strong evidence and agreement in the scientific community, um, both believers and unbelievers, on the fact that the universe did have a beginning and is not eternal. The Kalam cosmological argument addresses things that have a beginning specifically, so God doesn't fall into that category. Third, or third zero. And finally, one last point. Common experience and scientific evidence confirm the truth found in the first premise. Everything that exists has a cause. There isn't one thing on this planet that exists that can't be traced back to a creator or originator. We don't look at a fine piece of art or well-crafted piece of jewelry and think how amazing it is that it just miraculously came into being. We know there is an artist or a jewelry maker behind them. To argue differently, again, is just absurd. Now we're going to move on to premise two, the universe began to exist. This is where we look at evidence regarding the likelihood that the universe is either eternal or finite. Did the universe begin? There are a couple philosophical arguments and a couple scientific arguments from Craig's book On Guard that I'm going to share in an attempt to show that the universe did indeed have a beginning. The first philosophical argument argues that if the universe never began to exist, so stay with me because this can get confusing. I think I wrote it in a way that's not confusing, but you can tell me afterwards. Um, so the, again, the first one basically says then, on this point, Craig would argue that an actual infinite number of things cannot exist. So now we can comprehend of something infinite, um, what we would call a potential infinite, but the idea of an actual infinite number of things can exist. Um, German mathematician David Hilbert explains this with an illustration he refers to as Hilbert's Hotel. So this, this is where you have to stay with me. So Hilbert Hotel has infinite number of rooms and they're completely full. So there's an infinite number of rooms all the way this way, all the way that way, completely full, all the way to the end. If 
there is an end. Um, however, one new guest arrives. Hilbert just has to move every guest down one, and then he puts the new guest into room one. So it was full, and it's now still full. Now, a new bus arrives, a busload of passengers, an infinite busload of passengers, in fact. Um, the bus holds an infinite number of passengers. Hilbert's hotel is full, but can still accommodate. So here's what he has to do. He just merely moves guest one into room two, guest two into room four, guest three into room six, and so on. So if each guest just moves into the double of their actual room number, then um, because when you double a number, it always becomes an even number, all the odd numbers will be empty. So you just move the infinite number of new guests into the odd number room. So Hilbert just moves the infinite number of new guests into the odd number rooms. So before they arrived, the hotel was full. And if the odd number guests left, it would still be equally and infinitely full. This absurdity is intended to show how an actual infinite, like an eternal universe, is ridiculous. The second philosophical argument addresses the absurdity of an infinite universe by looking at it from a different mathematical angle. Consider the idea of counting to infinity. If you were to start with one, count two, three, four, five, and so on, you would never reach the end. Similarly, Al-Ghazali would argue that if you couldn't count to infinity, then you couldn't count down either. Because before you count one, you have to count zero, negative one, negative two, negative three, and so on. There's no beginning point to count from and no end to count to. Think about it this way. If a universe never began and goes back infinitely, then we actually literally couldn't even get to today. Now, scientifically, there's also good reason to see that the universe had a beginning. First, consider our expanding universe. So Alexander Friedman, a Russian mathematician, and George Lemaitre, a Belgian astronomer, came up with a theory independently of one another based on Einstein's earlier work on the theory of general relativity. Edwin Hubble then verified Friedman and Lemaitre's theory of an expanding universe when he found that the light from distant galaxies appeared to be redder than expected. So this red shift was taken to be a Doppler effect indicating that the light sources were receding in the line of sight. What Hubble had discovered was the expansion of the universe predicted by Friedman and Lemaitre on the basis of Einstein's theory and general relativity. It was a turning point in the history of science. So this red shift in the light was likely due to the stretching of the light waves as the galaxies moved away from Earth. It made it appear that we are at the center of a cosmic explosion and all the other galaxies are flying away from us at fantastic speeds. Now we're not actually at the center, it just appears that way. In other galaxies it would appear the same way, that everything is just moving away at some crazy speeds. So the if the universe is expanding, that means that yesterday it was smaller. And the day before that, it was smaller, and even smaller, and smaller, and smaller. So take that concept to its logical conclusion. At some point, you get back to a beginning. Physicist Paul Davies agrees and refers to this beginning or singularity as the creation event, which created all matter and energy in the universe and space-time itself, a true beginning. Craig points out that this model has been under constant scrutiny now for the last hundred years, since Einstein, and that physicists have proposed scores of alternative models over the decades, and those models have, um, that do not have an absolute beginning have been repeatedly shown to be unworkable. 
The only viable, even non-standard models are those that involve an absolute beginning of the universe. And the most recent research in the last 20 years argues without a doubt that history cannot extend itself um, but must reach a boundary at some point in time in the finite past. Now, the second scientific argument relates to the second law of thermodynamics. According to the second law of thermodynamics, unless energy is being fed into a system, that system will become increasingly disorderly. Craig puts it like this. According to the second law of thermodynamics, processes taking place in a closed system like ours always tend towards a state of equilibrium. In other words, unless energy is constantly being fed into the system, the process in the system will tend to run down and quit. So the application of the second law of thermodynamics for us this morning is the grim reality that if given enough time, this will occur in our closed universe. We've all heard that sometime down the road, the sun will get used up and explode and scorch the earth and make life unlivable. Now this isn't expected for like five billion years or more from now, but the point is that this equilibrium is theorized to occur over a finite period of time. <coughs> if the universe is finite, then this should have already happened. So if we go back all the way to infinity, the earth should have exploded and we shouldn't be here. But guess what? We're here. Um, and remember what I said earlier, there's strong agreement in the scientific community that the universe did in fact have a beginning. The second law of thermodynamics is one of those reasons for this agreement. So for a scientist to defy logic and agreement of their peers and to argue that the universe is eternal, is really just a hope or dream needed to escape the seeming absurdity of something coming out of nothing, a very blind faith. And as we've discussed already this morning, is saying that the universe is eternal any less absurd than saying that it just popped into existence from nothing? Both propositions make little sense, defy logic, and end up just being wishful thinking required to deny the existence of God, the uncaused first cause, which doesn't evade logic. So simply to avoid admitting that it seems quite logical to acknowledge that an uncaused first cause makes sense, atheist scientists come up with elaborate models making real jumps in logic simply to avoid what seems to make the most logical and plain sense. One atheist philosopher that Craig writes about is Daniel Dennett. Dennett agrees that you can't deny that the universe had a beginning, premise two. But he argues that the cause of the universe beginning is itself. He argues that the universe brought itself into being. Logic seems to have passed Dennett by when you consider that for the universe to create itself, it would have to already exist. But that seems to be the depths that atheists will go to to deny what seems to be pretty logical and rational, plain common sense, that, the, um, that an internal God created the universe and time and an, an uncaused first cause. Um, so in conclusion, this is launches right around the corner. Um, does the cos Kalam cosmological argument hold up? Whatever begins to exist has a cause. This is common sense seen time and again and simply stated, something never comes from nothing. Did the universe begin? Again, there's strong agreement on this in the scientific community that the universe did in fact have a beginning. What is debated and argued about is what the beginning looks like, but an infinite universe is universally seen as mathematically and scientifically absurd. Ergo, our conclusion that the universe has a beginning and therefore a cause holds water. The next logical question to ask would be, what or who caused it? I've used a familiar phrase, uncaused first cause, a number of times this morning. When we look at Dennett's solution that we just talked about, 
um, and others like it, it becomes evident that the atheists are willing to go to great lengths to avoid God. But by definition, an uncaused first cause must be God, a personal, eternal, and transcendent being outside of time and space with unimaginable power and strength. Now, in the words of Craig, for God to be the cause of space and time, he must transcend space and time and therefore exist without the limitations of time and space. This transcendent God or cause or God must therefore be changeless and immaterial, since timelessness entails changelessness, and changelessness implies immaterial, immateriality. Such a cause must be beginningless and uncaused, at least in the sense of lacking an antecedent causal condition, since there can't be an infinite regress of causes. And this entity must be unimaginably powerful, since it created the universe without any material cause. Then Craig goes on to suggest, besides these things, this uncaused first cause must be personal. So remember, God didn't have to create us, offer salvation through Christ, or give us eternal life, but he did. This personal act of creating, not because he must, but because he loves, implies a personal God and not a cosmic robot. Now, as we finish up this morning, I'd like to take this in a different direction. Um, the information we just reviewed is logical and, air, and an airtight argument for the existence of our universe and God. We have lots of other strong apologetic arguments for a plethora of other things, many that we're going to go over in this series, like the reliability of the scriptures, proofs of, for the re resurrection, and the, prob the problem of pain. As we're called to share the gospel with the watching world, these aforementioned apologetic arguments could come in handy as we talk to folks where they're at. The youth group got a sneak peek at today's sermon a few weeks back when I filled in for Josh on a Wednesday. Um, when we finished up our discussion on the Kalam cosmological argument, we addressed a few words that, were, that would be good guidelines when disseminating our message to those with whom we're witnessing. These words were kuth, subtlety, and finesse. Kuth is defined as cultured, refined, and well-mannered. This is what we want to be as we share truth with others. I think it important to remember that our goal is to win folks for Christ, not to win an argument, look smart, or be admired. Being well-mannered and refined goes a long way, and even being able to have an audience of others that want to pay attention to us. The other words, subtlety and finesse, are related. Again, remembering that our goal is to win people for Christ. It makes sense that we would attempt to take on a more clever and subtle approach to sharing these truths in order to achieve our ends. Again, our goal is not to be the loudest, most arrogant, smarty pants. Building relationships and playing, playing the long game as we are constantly putting pebbles into the shoes of those humans that don't know the truth seems to be much more practical and lasting approach to sharing the message about Christ and his word when compared to screaming matches and gotcha moments. So all this to say is we can have all the arguments and answers, but if we have burnt all bridges and made ourselves unimportant and irrelevant to the watching world, then in this endeavor, then our knowledge is useless. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. Uh, hopefully you picked up on kind of the main difference between the, the material I was going over two weeks ago and what Tim was talking about. He referred to some of the same things about you know God being a necessary being and then all else being contingent and why these are, again, good and logical things. But then, of course, the big issue that gets complicated and I was avoiding talking about was the issue of time and how that both helps and confuses things. So 
Um, one thing that's really great about talking about all this is that if you think about um, correct theology and good science and rational philosophy, those things should all agree with each other. So we have a lot more tools at our disposal than an atheist would as far as trying to understand the world around us, which is, of, of course, a great thing. I would encourage you, if there's anything that Tim went over, like there's probably, say, out of six things he said, there might be four or five you understood, and there might still be something, maybe something about Hilbert's Hotel, and, you know, th that just can be a complicated thing. Some minds are more drawn toward that and, and like the idea of thinking about infinity, and I think some people think maybe it's not as relevant or struggle with the idea, but the moment you contemplate God or having a soul and living forever, that's exactly what we're talking about. And so it's, it's uh, um, again, it's different to different minds in the way we think, but, um, or to think that some infinities can be bigger than others, just that by itself is a fascinating concept. But there's, you know, so many tools out there between books and videos and people you can talk to that if I just would encourage you if there's something still a little lacking or frustrating or you don't quite get to, to pursue that to, to help you understand and then you can of course communicate it better. As you know a couple weeks ago I kept asking if people had questions so then nobody did but of course to my both delight and frustration there were six questions immediately after the sermon and like I said let's talk so which would have probably been a benefit to share with other people so I would encourage you after the sermon or, or whenever to, to discuss those things. So um, thank you, Tim. This is great stuff. Please stand. I'm going to dismiss you with a passage from Ephesians, one of my favorites for a closing. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>